You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am with my amazing co-host, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Vedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And we are blessed to have an amazing co-host today, Dr. Marsha Inhorn, who is a professor and chair at the Council of Middle East Studies at Yale University and the founding editor of Journal of Middle East Women's Studies. Welcome, Marsha. Oh, hello, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here. We are so happy to have you with us today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here talking with you about topics that I care a great deal about. Absolutely. This is this is one of a series of podcasts that we're doing on faith and fertility. And you have some um, pretty unique insight based on your studies. And interestingly enough, we were talking right beforehand that you're actually going to have something about egg freezing coming up. Yeah. In fact, I have a book coming out in 2023. Based on a very large study that I did, a National Science Foundation study that I did with um, well over 100 American women who have frozen their eggs. And so I finally you know, put the book together. It's going to be called Motherhood on Ice, Egg Freezing Freezing and the American Mating Gap, (laughs) because I have a a strong, strong argument about why most women are freezing their eggs. That's it's a. It's phenomenal to hear about that kind of book coming from someone who has your background as an anthropologist, because we're all used to seeing yeah. it coming from either patients' backgrounds or physicians' backgrounds, but you're coming at it from a very different angle than what we normally see. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke with wonderful women about, you know, their motivations and experiences in doing egg freezing. And um, yeah, you know, so I collected all of these egg freezing stories and the book is full of them. So, so, so how did you, like, when did you hone in on that as being something, a topic for you to choose to, to write about? I mean, I find that so fascinating too. Like Carrie said, with your background being so different than ours and to write about a subject that we talk a lot about. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah. You know, there is a whole world of anthropology and sociology devoted to infertility, fertility, and assisted reproduction, a huge world. Um, You know, we're in separate spheres, which is really unfortunate. We don't interact enough with our physician colleagues, but I have been working on infertility and assisted reproductive technologies literally for almost 40 years, starting in the Middle East. I'm actually an expert on Middle Eastern infertility and ARTs. So that's more or less what we're going to be talking about today. But eventually I came back to my own country and my colleague uh, at the Yale IVF Fertility Center said in about 2011, there is a new assisted reproductive technology coming down the pike. It is oocyte cryopreservation, egg freezing, and we should do a study together. And so we did. And actually, um, my colleague Pasquale Patrizio was the co-PI on this study. And then we invited um, a colleague in Israel to do a smaller portion of the study um, with Jewish women in Israel. And so we actually, that study, there there's a lot on religion and sort of how religion affects women in their egg freezing decisions Um, that's going to be part of the book coming out as well. So it's mostly focusing on my part on American women 
114 American women who completed at least one cycle of non-medical egg freezing. So you may not be able to do this since the book hadn't come out, but can you give us just like a little snippet of like something you found out that was just really surprising to you? Yeah, the most important thing that I found, which I didn't necessarily think I was going to find, is that Women are freezing their eggs, the majority, the vast majority, not because of sort of career ambitions, putting their fertility on hold so that they can go to school and be a successful career woman. That is the discourse in the media. But the reality of women's lives is that they're coming to egg freezing late in their reproductive lives, usually in their mid to late 30s, because of what I'm calling the American mating gap. Um, Highly educated women in this country are in in millions more oversupply, if you will, than educated, eligible men who want to partner with them. And so you've got this whole cohort of American women who would really like to be partnered, pregnant, and parents um, who just really can't find a partner. Or if they had a partner, I mean, there's a huge number of women who are doing egg freezing after what I end up calling relationship trauma, relationship divorces, relationships that fall apart. And so people we who, see that all they, they the come time. in and it's like I just broke up or I just got divorced yes. I just something and now I'm going to it, it's like the impetus to do it yeah and so what are you going to do you know if you want to have biogenetically related children and be pregnant and not use donor egg what are you going to do egg freezing is the, the thing women are now turning to and so this book is really in a way trying to like recast the discussion toward the reality of women's lives, which is that they face a partnership problem. American educated women do not have, those women in their reproductive years, highly educated, do not have enough men, equally educated men who want to partner with them and and become fathers. So it's a mating gap. And, you know, I try to suggest some solutions, but in a way, that's not the, that's not the story that's been out there in the media about why people are freezing their eggs. And so the book is really trying to, you know, tell the real story of women's lives. And I hope it does. It's, you know, it was a labor of love, a huge study. And yeah, the book will be coming out with NYU Press in the early part of 2023. That's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to hear about that. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's a Southern thing. I don't know if it's just in the Southeast, but you know, you're absolutely right. The press kind of made it out like, oh, these career women, they don't want to have babies. They just want to. And, you know, when we started seeing egg freezing and we were all kind of on the front of where we started seeing, you know, where egg freezing wasn't something that was working out very well till vitrification happened. And then egg freezing became sort of a really popular thing. And I have so many women that come in and it's almost like they apologize to me. They're like, you know, I, I really want to have a baby, but, you know, I'm 38. And, you know, it's, it's almost like they feel guilty for doing it. Whereas, you know, I, I was I remember back during the Iraq war a long time ago when men like in probably 20 years ago, when we were really close to a military base and men were going to be sent to Afghanistan or Iraq at the time. And they they got all these anthrax vaccines and things. So they thought their fertility was going to be impaired. We had a mass influx of guys that were coming to free sperm. And because and they, they thought they were I'm sorry. No. And they weren't saying I'm sorry either. You know, nothing wrong with that. I think that's great that they did that. But it's just kind of funny how the gender difference and how people view freezing gametes, you know. And women, you know, I talk a lot about the sort of fertility shame that women feel 
this feeling of like, I am single. I did something wrong. I'm all alone, you know, self blame, you know, and, and that's terrible. A lot of women express those feelings like, Oh, I should, I'm a, this is a shameful thing. When in fact, like I say, no, it's you and thousands of other women are in this situation doing egg freezing. And it's not the perfect solution. As we know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up with a baby and it's expensive. It's invasive. There's all of that. That's correct. Still, it is a way to extend fertility for some women. And it may be the only way that women will have a chance to have a child. And so why not use it if you can, you know? So I, I try to sort of normalize it. I think I, the book is very normalizing, you know, the woman, the, the, the women who've read it as reviewers, like, you know, women need this book, not only, you know, college students who are, but, you know, women out there, families, men need to read it. Men need to be thinking about what they're doing reproductively as well. We need men to be good reproductive partners to women. Yeah. Very much so. All right, Susan, do we have any questions today? Yes. So we are going to do one question today. Um, Hello, my anxiety has been through the roof lately as my husband and I have recently started our fertility journey. I am 31 and my husband is 30. We've been trying to conceive for three years with no positive outcomes. We've recently discovered that my AMH is 0.2 and his semen analysis just came back with no sperm. We are devastated to say the least, but we are happy to have answers. We are most likely going to make a trip to the urologist for my husband and are looking into next steps to possibly be IUI with sperm donor. We are going to get more answers soon, but I wanted y'all's opinion on if IUI would be a waste of money with donor sperm if my AMH is so low, or would you recommend IVF for our first steps? I feel like my clock is ticking and we feel a little hopeless at this point. We are also open to embryo adoption, but we are trying to take this one step at a time. Thank you ladies for what you do. I think they're going to be just fine. Ultimately. Maybe traumatic getting there, but I think they're going to be just fine. And the reason I say that is because they they have already thought about the end game for them, which is having a child is what their priority is, and and ideally they want it with uh, with her genetic material, and then with the donor for him because it sounds like they've done the workup, and that's what that's what it will take for the sperm component of it, but but it sounds like you're willing to do whatever it's going to take. And that means all the difference. So really the question is, how do you want to get there? There is not a wrong answer here. And, and I say that because for people where IUI works, it's phenomenal. It's cheaper. It's easier. Fantastic. There are going to be some people where that that's not going to work and they have to move on to IVF. And there are going to be some people for whom they've got an AMH of 0.2 and that's not going to work either. And you're, you're doing embryo donation. There's still the possibility, particularly because you're so young, even with a low AMH that you're going to get a genetically related child. Um, you know, kind of depends on all the big picture. I would say if you really want multiple children, maybe worthwhile to go straight to IVF just because an IUI is going to help you with this first child will not help you with future children. So that would be something that I would consider with them, but I think you're going to be okay. Take a deep breath. This year has been anxiety provoking, (laughs) you know, on top of two prior really anxiety provoking years. And you know, you have some answers. So now you know how to address the problem and you just slowly start working for it. And yeah, I think you're going to be okay. It might suck to get there, but I think you're ultimately going to be okay. Yeah. And I would agree with, I would agree with that. The one question I had is, didn't they say they were headed to the urologist? They hadn't seen the urologist yet. Yeah. They haven't been to the urologist yet. So the one thing Mm -hmm. I would say about that is, you know, there's obstructive azospermia and there's non-obstructive, which means 
it could be just a blockage, kind of almost like a guy that's had a vasectomy. I mean, I know your husband hasn't had a vasectomy, but if there's a blockage there, there's a way for the urologist to aspirate sperm. And ultimately, um, you know, you could use that for IVF. The other possibility is, you know, if your husband's really stressed out, you know, just like in women, when women are stressed out, we stop having periods. When men get really stressed out, they stop having producing sperm because of the hormones that, from their brain that speak to their testes stop functioning or stop, stop being produced. And so, I would say don't jump off the cliff yet, kind of like Carrie said. I think there's still lots of possibilities, and it could still potentially work out with both of your gametes. You know, if it turns out he makes sperm and if there's just a blockage there or he may be able to go on some hormones that will help him produce sperm, he may be okay. And I've definitely had women in their early 30s, even with low AMHs, and of course, we would prefer that you didn't have a low AMH, but I've definitely have had young women um, that are able to get pregnant even with low AMH because they have age on their side and they have young eggs. So uh, I think I might carry, I think it's going to work out for you. I'm not sure how, but I think it will. Exactly. I, I, I think you do have some more data gathering to get um, to see if truly there isn't sperm. But I think just by the fact that you're already mentioning embryo donation, that you're kind of right in, in the right psychological place, which honestly mm -hmm. is a really good thing. It is so much easier to get somebody pregnant who is in that right space than somebody who's not in that right space. Um, I, I can say, I, I tell a number of my patients, I'm like, we're going to get here, but I need you to be in the, the same place I, as I am, you know? And so I would say, gather some more information. It, it's going to be a journey. Hold on to each other through that journey. So there's going to be some ups and downs, but I, I think that in the end, there's a very good chance that you're going to be parents. All right. Very good. So we're going to kind of move on to Marsha and what she specializes in. So can you give us a little bit of information about your background and how you ended up studying what you do study? Yeah. So, um, well, I am an anthropologist uh, studying human living people, and I focus on reproduction, gender and reproduction. And in anthropology, we usually have a regional focus, um, you know, part of the world where we really learn the language and sort of specialize regionally. And I ended up um, back in the 1980s, uh, beginning to work in the Middle East, you know, speaking Arabic and realizing, because I'm a medical anthropologist, looking at health issues that are really important reproductive health issue, one that hadn't been studied at all, but that really mattered, you know, to people's lives was infertility, the inability to get pregnant. And um, at that time, you know, IVF was born, if you will, in 1978. I went to the Middle East in the 1980s. And already by 1980, the first religious pronouncement of fatwa was issued um, in Egypt at a very old and ancient religious you know, university saying, oh, there's this new technology, IVF, in the world, and let's look at it and decide whether Muslim couples should use it. And indeed, it was a very progressive um, religious decree saying I have that goosebumps. I'm just letting you know this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Islam from the get go, from the birth of IVF, Islamic religious authorities really condoned the, you know, IVF assisted reproduction as a way to overcome the human suffering 
of infertility. And so I was really there at the beginning, if you will, of the sort of birth of IVF in the Muslim Middle East. And I ended up staying and doing a number of studies, first of infertility, and then of IVF when it was actually introduced to Egypt, which is where I was doing my research. And then ICSI came to the region, mm-hmm. intracytoplasmic sperm injection to help overcome male infertility, which is a very significant problem in the Muslim world. And so I went to Lebanon to study the you know, introduction of ICSI. And then I went to the Arab Gulf to look at the traveling of Muslim couples sort of from all over trying to come to sort of a hub to get their assisted reproduction. And then I returned to the United States um, and did a project with Arab refugees, um, mostly from Iraq and Lebanon, who were infertile, needing help, and how difficult it was often for them to access affordable assisted reproductive technologies in America. And so I have really literally been working in the Muslim Middle East my whole career and sort of following the evolution, if you will, of the assisted reproductive technologies as they sort of changed over time and sort of seeing, well, what are the religious authorities saying about these technologies? How do they view them? And I'm going to make an argument here right from the get-go that Islam has been very technologically agentive and accepting. Um, Islam, along with Judaism, has been very permissive in terms of allowing the majority of assisted reproductive technologies. Um, Really, I'm going to say much more permissive than, say, Catholicism as a major world religion. And because of that, Muslims have been um, seeking IVF and these technologies really ever since the 1980s. It's been a very robust development of an IVF sector in the Muslim world. So let's just stop there. Yeah. What do you think it is about this particular religion that has made it so accepting of a number of our procedures, offerings in the treatment of infertility? Yeah, in the religion, Islam is very, how shall I say, very child oriented. Um, There is a lot of desire. It's marriage and family oriented. Let's just put it that way. So it's almost a moral mandate for adult Muslims to marry and have children at some point in their reproductive lives. And so the Middle Eastern region, for example, is among among the most married regions of the world. More than 90% of people will marry at some point and really almost to become, be considered a kind of full adult you need to become a parent. Um, And so, of course, there are are issues, you know, a very strong mandate, a sort of moral religious mandate to marry and have children can be difficult for certain people. But, you know, because of that, the religion sort of really valuing marriage and family making, um, people do what they can to marry and have children and, you know, want to. It's very sort of marriage oriented, marriage minded. And children are very valued, very valued. You know, I took my own children to the Middle East at various points when they were little and my own husband said, this is just unbelievable. You would never see that much attention to children in America. I mean, men and women, you know, wanting to hold the babies and, you know, just really loving kids. So it's a, a part of the world where people want to have families and the religion really emphasizes that. Um, so you've got that sort of pronatalism, if you will, there, and just people's desire to have kids. Children are valued. They're seen as bringing great joy to a marriage. So that's the underlying reason why I think, you know, if you've got an infertility problem, 
the religion is going to say, do what you can to overcome that because that problem is going to cause great suffering for you individually and for your marriage and for your family. Are there specific things within the religion? Like we have heard from some of our other guests where there are, there are certain functional components of the religion that almost predisposed to infertility because of some of the, the underlying customs. Are there any like that in Islam that, you know, unintentionally make it a little bit more difficult for patients with particular conditions, whether it's that they don't ovulate or what, you know, whatever it may be male factor in particular, like I, you know, I would, uh, in some, some religions, it's more difficult for the men to give us a sperm sample because it's not, it's not appropriate to ejaculate without the intent of conceiving. Um, right. and, and so sometimes we see patients who have difficulty completing that request in our testing, which is very important for us because of the underlying value system. So are there other things like that that can make it more challenging for Muslim patients to move forward with treatment or testing? Yeah, there's some big issues here. This is a big and a very important question. So thank you for posing it. Um, the first thing that I will, let's start with male infertility. Um, in the Muslim world, in the Middle East and in other parts of the Muslim world, it is allowed religiously to marry cousins. Uh, we call this endogamy in anthropology. And so there are actually some preferential uh, reasons why see, you know, marrying within the family is seen as a good thing. It keeps the family together. You know, it strengthens family bonds and so forth. And because of that practice of consanguineous or marriage within the family, there really are higher rates of sort of genetic male infertility. Um, and you can see this you know, family clustering of, you know, several brothers will be infertile together, um, you know, cousins, uncles, and so forth. And so I've actually written about that with colleagues. There probably is, that's probably deleterious. That practice of cousin marriage is probably deleterious to male infertility over time. And as a result, there really are higher rates of what you might call severe male factor infertility that you find in you know, the Middle East with, you know, non-obstructive azospermia, you know, very poor count, poor morphology. Um, so there's a lot of male infertility, a lot of male infertility, which is why ICSI has been such a boon to you know, the Middle East and men realizing that there's something that can be done to help overcome male factor infertility. Um, and the, that's really important. ICSI is really important because that leads us to the second big issue for your question, Dr. Bedian, which is that 90% of Muslims in the world are Sunni Muslims. It says the majority branch of Islam is called Sunni Islam. And although the Sunni religious authorities uh, condone the use of IVF for Muslim couples, they do not condone the use of any form of third party reproductive assistance, which means no egg donor, no sperm donor, no embryo donor, no gestational surrogacy. So all third parties are not allowed in the majority branch of Islam, which means that if you need sperm donation for a case of, say, you know, azospermia, um, you are not going to be able to access that if you're a pious Muslim couple. And similarly, you know, egg donation too, you know, and surrogacy, those things just really, they are not practiced in Muslim majority countries. Um, there are, is an exception, which I'm happy to talk about, which is in the Shia dominant part of the Middle East, which the 
which would be Iran. <laughs> Iran is the epicenter of the minority branch of Islam called Shia Islam. They're allowed to use donors and in actually in Iran, all forms of third party reproductive assistance are practiced. Um, but for most Muslims, these things are not allowed. And therefore, it is a kind of obstacle, a religious obstacle, if you will, um, for Muslim couples who are pious and want to sort of follow the majority opinion. So, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this. If I remember from my days in Minnesota, um, where I had quite a few Muslim patients, a lot of it had to actually do with like lines of inheritance and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah. So that is really one of the other huge issues, a sort of moral imperative in Islam is that each child should know its lines of descent. Uh, it's called nasab. It's like genealogy. You need to know where you came from. And it's very serious, especially because Muslim societies are almost all organized patrilineally where, you know, it's you need to know who your father is, your grandfather, your great grandfather. But also you really need to know who your maternal line, you know, where you come from in both ways, but your name and your sense of inheritance and your sense of descent is patrilineal. So men in particular really want to know that the child is theirs, you know, it comes from their sperm and is, you know, the lines of descent are clear. And so the thought of like bringing a sperm donor into an infertility situation, literally uh, people think of it as bringing a stranger into the family, not from your line of descent. It's also equated to sort of extramarital relations, it's, which is something called zinna, an out of, out of wedlock kind of conception. And it's also considered, well, there are concerns about incest that arise as well. You know, if you're using an anonymous donor and you conceive a child and then that child would grow up and meet another person from the same anonymous donor. So there are real concerns about incest. And also there's just concern about child welfare and child rights. So the child who doesn't, who thinks that they're the child of parents, but, you know, biologically they are not. But that is going to be very unsettling psychologically to the child, um, what we now call those DNA surprises that are popping up in the world today. And they want to avoid that so that a child would never you know, be surprised about its parentage. So there are a lot of moral arguments that are used to justify the Islamic, the Sunni Islamic prohibition on third party reproductive assistance. And the vast majority of, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of Muslim men, women, and couples over the years. And the vast majority of Sunni Muslims are just feeling like they would never go that route. So that's really important for, I think, clinicians in the U.S. who are dealing with pious, you know, religiously pious Muslim couples. You need to realize that that is a red line, you know, for many couples. Yeah. So one kind of question related to that. Would it be a red line? Because we have this fairly often where we'll have a sister who will donate an egg to another sister or a brother that will donate sperm to the brother's wife. And so would that would that fall in line with kind of the genealogy concept or is that still considered as sort of an incest kind of extramarital affair type situation? Yeah, for Sunni Muslim couples, 
they wouldn't do that. Okay. But where they're doing that a lot is in Iran. Um, and I have a wonderful colleague, Dr. Saraya Tremaine, who's at Oxford University, who studied IVF in Shia dominant Iran and where they do everything because actually the Shia religious authorities, including Ayatollah Khomeini and then Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khamenei, the successor to Ayatollah Khomeini, they issued fatwas saying it's okay, it's a merit savior to use don donors, um, and that that's really important. And they don't consider it to be the major violation of lines of descent and zina. And there are some ways that Shia couples have sort of gotten around this through temporary marriages, um, breastfeeding. There, there are some things I could talk to you about if you're interested. But basically what they're finding in Iran is that most of the donation, people still want to keep it in the family so that they're not taking an anonymous donor who they don't know. And so there is a lot of sibling donation, uh, gestational surrogacy with siblings caring, you know, sisters caring the child. Um, yeah, so that's what people prefer. But that is only going to be among Shia Muslim couples who are only about 10% of the world's Muslims are Shia Muslims. So if I were in the situation of being an IVF clinician in an area of America that has a lot of Muslim couples, you'd kind of want to know that. And you'd kind of want to know, but they're like, you know, I really want my wife to be pregnant. We know, you know, we're not really supposed to be using donor egg, but it's really important for her to have a child to be pregnant. She's going to gestate the child. Her blood is going to go into that pregnancy. And then when she bears the child, she's going to breastfeed the child. And in Islam, a woman who breastfeeds a baby is becomes the milk mother to that baby. And it's considered to be inviolable. It is as if she's the mother of that child. And people, babies who are breastfed by the same woman are considered to be milk siblings. They are considered to be biological, biological siblings to each other. And so it's a way to get around. It's a way to create kinship through milk kinship. And so Sunni Muslim couples who accept donor egg, you know, in some cases are saying, look, she's going to be the milk mom to the child. And like, we feel completely okay about that. So that's something to know, something to know. <laughs> Yeah. What is yeah. one thing that I, I know I've seen in, in a number of my couples, especially where it's predominantly female factor, there's there's a lot more shame, shame, overlay. Yeah. And it, there's there's so much that goes into I mean, these these women, I mean, the way I feel as their physician, they're they're scared as to the outcome of the rest of their life based on this moment in time what what is what are some things that we could do to help women through this situation in, in light of their religious faith yeah and i think this is really important i mean so a woman who's infertile is biologically infertile um and if she's muslim and you know in a in a muslim marriage um with a you know person who's pious she may really fear that her marriage is going to end. I mean, I think that is the big fear that the marriage is going to come to an end because Islam does allow divorce. And it actually, as you probably know, it does allow polygynous marriage, which would mean marriage to more than one wife. If you were in a Muslim country, it is allowed. It's very rare. I want to argue that polygynous marriages are quite rare, in at least in the Middle East. They're rare. But that's the fear, you know, that the husband is going to just need a child so badly that he will divorce or take another wife in order to fulfill that, you know, parented mandate. And so that's sort of the, the, the fear is that the marriage is going to fall apart. But what I found over 
really decades of working in the Muslim Middle East is that so many marriages, infertile marriages, where the woman is the infertile partner are so rock solid that the couple looks at it as a combined, a shared sort of journey to try to have a baby. And that's why I think there's such a robust IVF sector in the Middle East. The Middle East has one of the most, the largest and most robust IVF sectors in the world. It's because Muslim couples are encouraged not to give up. They're encouraged to seek solutions to their suffering. Mm -hmm. And all of these technologies are seen as God's gift, you know, that God created these technologies and they created physicians to use these technologies. Uh, physicians are there to do God's handiwork to help infertile couples overcome their infertility. And so people are encouraged to seek solutions. And, you know, before you would consider just automatically divorcing, you know, you would try something. And so that's really what Couples who've got the means to access these technologies will try their best to use the technologies before they go to other sort of, you know, more dire things uh, like, you know, ending a marriage. Um, and so I've seen so many, so many couples, female infertility, male infertility, where they really will make their best effort to, to use, you know, assisted reproductive technologies to overcome the problem. And so I think the, that's the good news. And men, Muslim men can be very compassionate to their wives. I mean, I found this even like 30 years ago among very poor couples where the wife was infertile and the, the wife would, I do these interviews with a woman who would say, you know, 90% of husbands in my situation would divorce me. And I am so lucky. I got the 1% good man <laughs> who stays with me because he loves me. And he told me that I'm more precious than having children. Aww. And I'm so lucky. And then I'd go, wow, you're, that's so wonderful. You've got a wonderful husband. And then I would do another long interview with another woman who'd say, I'm so lucky. I have the, you know, so it's like, well, there are a lot of 1% husbands in Egypt. But I definitely, you know, I found, and, and here in, I'm going to have to say the other thing about being Muslim, if you really are a pious, you know, person, if you are a pious Muslim man, um, you realize there are lots of, sayings in the Quran and in the religious scriptures that, you know, infertility, God makes some people have only sons, some people have only daughters, and some people have none at all. And that is God's will. And if you really believe that, then you'll realize it's not in your control, right? That this is something that God has willed for you, and you won't question it. And so, you know, men and women who are really more religious um, will say, well, that's 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 in the Quran and I can't question that. Therefore, you know, I will do what I can to overcome this. But it isn't ultimately my destiny is not something I can completely control. But I, I'm going to say that Muslims are really encouraged to do what they can to try to overcome their medical problems. And that's why we have this great turn to IVF uh, among Muslim couples. I have a question because when I reached out to you, part of the reason that I reached out to you was I, I initially started looking for support groups for individuals, couples that were struggling with infertility that were Muslim. And there is, at least in the United States, there, I, in my professional opinion, there is um, a vast deficit of that type of thing around. What, do you have some insight as to why that is? 
Yeah, you know, the notion of the support group is, a am going to say, you know, a very kind of American or Western kind of thing. You know, the notion of confessionals that we Americans are, tell everything about our lives and that we go to places and tell our stories and get support through that, you know, that you have to sort of be in that mode of like being comfortable with that and telling your private business. And, you know, at least, I mean, in the places where I've worked in the Middle East, you know, no one's comfortable with that. They feel like, you know, it brings some shame. You're telling your private very intimate reproductive matters to, you know, other people. And why would you do that? You know, very, these are deeply sensitive personal matters and you don't really want to share them. And actually, uh, infertile couples often don't even share their problem with their closest family members. You know, mm-hmm. women might say like the only person who knows what we're going through is my mother because uh, mothers are often considered to be best friends. And so she's the only one who knows what we're going through, you know. So it's just not, it's a cultural difference, I'm going to say. And so um, the notion of just talking about it with other people can be very difficult and very painful. I did find in America, I I did a a study within a mostly refugee community, a a community in Michigan where a lot of the infertile men and women that I was talking to had come from, you know, very dire circumstances in Iraq. They were coming as refugees. They had, you know, a lot of trauma in their past and they were saying, you know, I'm not the only guy facing this problem of male infertility, I ended up talking to another young guy. He's, you know, got the same problem. And there were sort of these informal groups that were sort of popping up of talking to each other and encouraging other men, go to the doctor, go to this place, go seek treatment. You shouldn't be just this. You're not alone, you know, but the notion of a formal kind of support group developing for Muslims, I've never seen it. Um, And I think it has to do with privacy considerations and a lot of shame. And, and Dr. Bedian, you brought up an issue too, that was really important that I didn't, I didn't, I failed to mention. But for Muslim men um, who are in the world of ARTs, they're going to need to masturbate to give you know, semen samples as part of the treatment. And that is a source of shame for a lot of Muslim men. Um, for one, it is considered for very pious Muslims, it's considered something that you shouldn't do. It is a form of extramarital, you know, Relations. it's not... A, is not a heterosexual form of reproduction. Doing it on your own, masturbating to, you know, get uh, ejaculate is outside of the sort of remit of sort of normal sexual intercourse within marriage. Sort of anything that is not heterosexual marital sex is considered to be zinna or out of wedlock sex. And so masturbation is one of those things that is considered to be a bit, you know, haram or not really religiously licit. And so some men have a lot of concern about that, about ejaculating, you know, through masturbation. And also men, I met many men who felt very terrible that they had been youthful masturbators. They felt that they were infertile because they used up all their, you know, all of their good sperm They had punished their reproductive organs. And I used to actually sit there and do a bit of counseling with men like, no, that's don't worry about that. That's (laughs) true. You know, so men had a lot of guilt feelings about masturbation. Mm. So I'm kind of interested since you sort of have a dual relationship with American Muslims and Muslims in different countries. I just wonder kind of 
what you're saying as a general rule, is it true of all Muslims as far as like wanting to be, you know, very private about what's going on? Or do you see a difference between Americans as opposed to those that live in Iran or in other countries? Or first generation, second generation? Yeah. I'm going to just say that Muslims come in all varieties, you know, and the problem <laughs> is that we end up sort of homogenizing Islam and Muslims, you know, Islam is a very interesting religion with different branches. And you really need to know if, if whether, you know, you're, the couple that you're you know, working with, are they Sunni? Are they Shia? Are they practicing? Do they care? Are they secular? In America, there are lots of Muslims who really aren't practicing as much as they might. That's true of Christians, too. <laughs> <laughs> same with Jews, same with, you know, so you, you need to know where they're at. Right. Yeah. You know, and that does matter. And I, I think that, um, you know, that's really important, something to bear in mind. And the fact that some of you said that you don't really end up talking about Islam with your Muslim patients says something right there. If it's not really something that they're worried about, maybe you shouldn't be worried about it. But if they are, mm-hmm. you kind of need to understand mm-hmm. the differences and some of the issues that are facing more pious Muslims, you know, religiously practicing Muslims do have some concerns that you need to understand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if they're, if they're Sunni Muslims and they don't agree with, and they're, they're, they're very concerned about third-party reproductive assistance, well, you need to talk about that, right? Um, and yeah. So is it appropriate to ask? I are you Sunni or are you Shia? Yeah, I certainly would. And I would ask, like, are you practicing? Or are you secular? Uh-huh. How do you feel about doing this? Yeah. Uh-huh. The one thing I'm going to say with, with um, couples that I met in America working with a pre- predominantly refugee community of Arabic speaking, mostly Iraqis and Lebanese in Michigan, you know, the other thing that Muslims in the Middle East really don't do they don't do what we would call western style adoption is also considered to be not licit to take a child that is not biologically yours and to treat it as if it is your child to give it your name to have the child inherit from you to raise the child as if it is yours the way that we do it in america that is considered to be not right because you're violating the child's sense of known heritage for all the same reasons uh, why third-party reproductive assistance is not considered to be religiously allowable. The same thing holds for adoption. And so people in the Muslim world who want to take care of orphans can do something called kafala, which is like sponsorship. It's like sort of like permanent fosterage. You can take a child into your home and life, but it must know that you are not its biological parents. It must know that it had different biological parents and you're technically not allowed to give it your name or to give it your inheritance. And so it's a different view of taking orphans into your life. Um, But in America, when I talked to, you know, American Muslim couples who are infertile and they knew about adoption, they realized that adoption is practiced in the U S there was more openness to it. You know, men and women saying, look at, we just want to be parents. We want to have children, you know, if that's the way we have to do it, we would consider doing it. How do you do it? I mean, I actually got asked questions about like, how would you begin that process? You know? So I think that when you live in a different country and you're sort of, you're, uh, societal norms change. Yeah. The, in anthropology, we have this wonderful concept by one of our, our Harvard colleagues, Arthur Kleinman, he calls it the local moral world. What local moral world are you (laughs) in? 
right? You know, and even though you may have a local moral world that you bring with you, when you live in a place over time, your local moral world can change. And so you sort of see that people are sort of adapting their practices uh, because they're in America now. Hmm. Where adoption is considered to be an acceptable way for most people to become parents. Now, do you have a book about all of this out as well? In addition to the, the egg, <laughs> egg freezing book that's coming out, do you have a book about all this as well? I have six books on wow. all of this. I have written six books. So the last one, you know, of most relevance to an American audience is called America's Arab Refugees, Vulnerability and Health on the Margins. And it's about reproductive health among the Arab refugee population. And yeah, it is, uh, I have a whole chapter on this sort of local moral world of infertile patients trying to negotiate uh, IVF and ICSI and how they would do it in America, you know, and just being refugees, they often don't have access to the resources economically to afford IVF. So I talk a lot about like, what can we do in America to make ARTs more accessible to people um, who can't afford them? And, you know, just, uh, yeah, it really deals with sort of the Muslim local moral world and how do you go about doing IVF and ICSI in America, if you're not going to accept sperm donation and egg donation and so on. That's great. We'll get some links to your books to put on our webpage so that our listeners can access those as well. I, I, I think all three of us know what we're reading next. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're going on my library uh, wish list because <laughs> I, I have my running list of books. I'm like, okay. That's awesome. I also end up, I will tell you, like I have, you know, just people who contact me randomly. I, I have ended up, you know, talking to Muslim couples who have questions. I'm happy to do that. You know, I've talked a lot about this topic. I've given lectures and presentations on this topic a lot over the years. So I'm always happy to help if people Thank do have questions. Thank you so much right. for talking to us. This has been fascinating. We appreciate I could, it. I could go on this for another couple of hours. Okay, tell <laughs> more stories. I want to know more. We, we might need to have a part two. <laughs> yeah, Thank absolutely. You I really appreciate talking to you and I hope it helps somebody out there in the podcast listening world. Absolutely. I'm sure it will. Well, thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on by and leave us a like or follow and say hello. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love episode ideas too. So let us know what you're thinking. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk with you soon. Bye. 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 Thanks.